0: Do you want to call action? Action!
1: Okay, I'm going to be talking today about some recent work in the field of experimental philosophy. But before I talk about what this actual recent work has discovered, I just want to say something super briefly about sort of what this field is. What is the field of experimental philosophy? So basically, experimental philosophy is a relatively new field, one that just cropped up around past 10 years or so. And it's a field that's an interdisciplinary field, uniting ideas from philosophy and psychology. So in particular, what experimental philosophers tend to do is to go after questions that have sort of been traditionally associated with philosophy, but to go after them using the methods that have been traditionally associated with psychology. So if you want to get a vague sense of what this field is like, you might consider the analogy of neuroeconomics. So if you open up a typical paper in neuroeconomics, you see this experimental methodology and statistical analysis that would be very much at home in just any other kind of paper in cognitive neuroscience. But this work is infused with this tradition of theories and of concepts from this much older tradition of economics. So in much the same way, if you open up a typical paper in experimental philosophy, you see these experimental methods and statistical analyses that look kind of just the same as any others that you'd find in psychology. But this work that people are doing is being informed in certain ways by these theories, by questions, by concepts, in this much older tradition of philosophy. Over the past few years, there have been all sorts of work in experimental philosophy and all sorts of different questions, on the concept of knowledge, on consciousness, on morality. But here I'm going to be talking about one specific thing that's really been exploding just in the past couple of years, and this is experimental philosophy work on the notion of the self. So this is work on questions about what is the self? How does the self extend over time? Is there a kind of essence of the self? How do we know what falls inside or outside the self? I'm going to be talking about sort of two basic examples of this type of work. The first is about this question that philosophers have called the question of personal identity over time. The question of personal identity. It's a question in philosophy that goes back at least to the time of John Locke. It's one that philosophers are still talking up to about up until the present day. You can get a sense for the question pretty easily just by thinking about a certain kind of initial question, and it's this. So imagine how the world is going to be a year from now. A year from now, there are going to be all these people in this world, and one of those people is going to have a very special property. That person is going to be you. So with any luck, a year from now, there will be someone out there who is you. But what is it about that person that makes that person you? So that right now, at this moment, you have a certain kind of body, you have certain kind of goals and beliefs and values, you have certain emotions. In the future, there are going to be all these other people they are going to have certain bodies, they're going to have certain goals, certain beliefs, certain emotions. Some of them are going to be to varying degrees similar and to varying degrees different from yours. And one of those people is going to be you, so what makes that person you? So philosophers have discussed this in great detail, and the way that they usually discuss it is at a very kind of abstract level, and often with recourse to seemingly absurd, insane thought, science fictional thought experiments. But although this work might seem initially to be so abstract, that it could never have any bearing on how human beings actually think about any question, I think that this work in philosophy has actually led to some really interesting insights. So I'm going to consider just one, crazy thought experiment, it's from the philosopher Derek Parfitt. And this is the way it goes. Imagine that Derek Parfit is just being gradually transformed, molecule by molecule, into Greta Garbo. <laughs> so at the beginning of this whole process, there's Derek Parfitt. Then at the end of the whole process, it's really clear that Derek Parfit no longer exists. Derek Parfit is gone. Now there's Greta Garbo. But now the key question is this. At what point along this transformation did the change take place? When did Derek ceased to exist. And when did Greta come into existence? So if you start to reflect on this question for a while, it just immediately becomes clear. There couldn't be some single point. There couldn't be a single second, say, in which Derek stops existing and Greta starts existing. What you're seeing is some kind of gradual process where as this person becomes more and more and more different from the Derek that we know now, it becomes less and less right to say that he's Derek at all, and more and more right to say that he is gone and a completely other person has come into existence. So, so far we're talking about this kind of seemingly crazy level of a weird science fiction experiment. But now, try to think in light of that thing I just said about your own life. So, imagine what things are going to be like in 30 years. In 30 years, there's going to be a person around who you might normally think of as you. But that person is actually going to be really, really different from you in a lot of ways. Chances are, a lot of the values you have, a lot of the emotions, a lot of the beliefs, a lot of the goals are not going to be shared by that person. That person's going to not share them. So in some sense, you might think that person is you. But is that person really you? That person is like you in certain respects. But just like Derek on his gradual transformation into Greta, you might think that person is kind of not me anymore. Once you start to reflect on that, you might start to have a really different feeling about that person, the person you're going to turn into. You might even start to feel a little bit competitive with that person. So, suppose you start saving money right now. You are losing money, and he or she is the one getting the money. So, the money is being taken away from the person who has the values, the emotions, the goals that you really care about. It's going to this other person, the person who's, like, deeply different from you in certain respects. So... Experimental philosophers began thinking about this kind of problem. And they thought, you know, maybe this kind of work, work coming out of this very abstract kind of tradition this fil- of philosophical reflection, can actually shed an important life on how, shorten light on how people think about their own future selves. There's been a whole bunch of different experimental studies on this. And I'm just going to give one example. It's a study by Bartels, Kvarin, and Nichols it just came out recently. So in their study, participants were randomly assigned to get one of two different pieces of information about this self. So participants in one condition were told scientists have really studied the self in great detail, and what they've determined is that the self is really surprisingly stable over time. Even really far into the future, you're going to be, on a really deep level, fundamentally similar to the person that you are today. So of course, certain superficial things might change here and there, but the person you're going to be in the future is really going to be shockingly similar to the person you are right now. Participants in the other condition were given the opposite kind of information, they were told, Scientists have studied the self, what they discovered is this really surprising thing. It's that the self changes radically. Just in a few months from now, many aspects of who you are now, the way that you think of yourself, are going to be different. By 30 years from now, you're going to be completely different, utterly different from the kind of person you are now. And now, participants were told, after they gotten this information and answered a few questions about it, guess what? We're giving you a special bonus for participating in this experiment. We're going to need some extra money for participating in this experiment, this special bonus. And now you have a choice. You can take any percentage of it for yourself, or you can give any percentage away to this charity, Save the Children. So you can take the money 100% for yourself, 100% for them, or any percentage of it you can give away to them. But now here comes the trick. Participants in the study were given random assignment to a time at which they or Save the Children was going to get the money. So participants in one condition were told, in one week, either you're going to get the money, or Save the Children is going to get the money. So how much do you want to give to either group? Participants in the other condition were told in one year either you're going to get the money or Save the Children is going to get the money. So how much do you want to give in each case? And what you see here is something really interesting. In the condition where participants told were told that either they or Save the Children is going to get the money in one week, the manipulation about the information about the self had almost no effect. It doesn't matter whether you're told that the self changes radically or the self is remarkably continuous, either way you give roughly the same percentage away to this charity. By contrast, in the condition where you were told that they're going to be receiving the money in one year, the information about the self ended up having a quite substantial and significant effect. So when participants were told that they, in a year, were going to be radically different from the person that they are today, they are willing to give away a larger percentage of the money to charity. So what we see here in this experiment is that people's um, uh, judgments about how much the self is changing are having an impact on how much of a difference they see between themselves and other people. In the condition where they're told that the self is remarkably stable, they think of themselves as being fundamentally different from other people. This person in the future has a special kind of connection to me that no one else could have. By contrast, in the condition in which participants were told that the self is going to be very, very different in the future, participants thought, you know, I guess that person who will exist in the future he is more similar to me than other people around. He has a little bit of a special connection to me. But every other human being also has a certain kind of connection to me. The sense in which that person is really specially connected to me in a way that no one else could be has been diminished. So what we see in this first example is how this very abstract notion coming out of this tradition and philosophy stemming from John Locke can actually be applied to understanding human behavior and to manipulating the degree to which people show generosity to others. So that concludes our first example. Now, let's consider one more example. second example is this uh, very different philosophical question. And the question is, is there something like a core of the self, like an essence of the self, the true self, who you are sort of deep down? So one thing you might think is, there's all sorts of stuff going on within our minds. We have all sorts of different kinds of beliefs, goals, values, and emotions. But not all of this is equal. Some of these things represent our true self, the person that we truly are deep down inside. But of course, you might have all sorts of other beliefs that you just managed to pick up in one way or another. Maybe you picked it up from some clever advertisers putting ads on TV, from the way your parents were. But those things aren't representing your true self. Rather, if you could get rid of those things, if you could get rid of these parts of your psychology, you'd be able to more truly reveal the kind of person that you were all along. So for thousands of years, philosophers have been interested in this question, what is the true self? In particular, they've been interested in the question of all the parts of you, which ones are the true self, and which ones are this kind of superficial layer, the part of you that isn't really your core. So if you go back to the ancient Greek philosophers, for example, to Plato and Aristotle, you see this view that our capacity for reasoning and reflection, that is our true self. So the view that these people developed is, if you really reflect on certain matters clearly and deliberately, then you think, on reflection, this is fundamentally what I should do. Then that answer, the belief that you come to on reflection, that is your true self. Of course, you might not do it. You might not actually do the thing that you arrive on reflection, but when you don't do it, you're just failing to act on your own true self. You're not doing the thing that reflects the person that you, yourself, really are deep down inside. But other thinkers, in later centuries, ended up having almost the opposite of that view. So many people thought exactly the opposite of this first view, that your true self this is the thing that comes in in your sudden impulses, your hidden urges, these flashes of emotion. It's not the case that your true self is going to be revealed when you think carefully and calmly about something. Instead, the opposite is true. To the extent that you're carefully and calmly thinking about something, that just obscures your true self. Your true self is the thing that comes out when you're overcome with emotion, when you're completely drunk. It's in those moments that really your true self is going to come out. So. Experimental philosophers have been interested in this question as well, but the question that experimental philosophers have been interested in is maybe slightly different. So, experimental philosophers aren't trying to ask the question, do human beings really have a true self, and if so, what is in it? Rather, the question has been, do people think of of themselves and other people in terms of the true self, and if so, how do they decide which part of the self counts as this true self? And over just the past couple of years, there's been a real surge of work in this area, including some really fantastic experiments by the philosopher Chandra Sripada. But here, I'm going to talk about one particular study that I think really gets at that initial philosophical question I was talking about. And this is a study that was recently um, conducted. The lead author is George Newman. And then in addition, there are two co-authors, Paul Bloom and myself. So we're interested in, in this question about the true self, and we assign participants randomly to one of two conditions. So participants in one condition receive the following story. Imagine a person named Mark. Mark is a secular humanist. He travels around the world teaching people that there's nothing morally wrong about being gay. And in fact, he coaches people on techniques they can use to avoid being prejudiced against gay people, to o- overcome their sort of tendency to stereotype or prejudice gay people, be prejudiced against gay people. But Mark has a problem. Mark's problem is that he himself ends up having certain feelings of disgust, toward um, gay people, and he openly acknowledges this, and just sees it as his part of his own personal struggle. So in the story I've just told you, there's a kind of conflict between Mark's mind, it's a conflict between system one and system two, it's a conflict between his sort of more automatic, emotional self, and another part of him, his sort of more reflective beliefs, and in particular, his more reflective beliefs are telling him there's nothing wrong with being gay, but on a more automatic, visceral level, he's having this emotion that he himself would reject. So now the question is, considering these two parts of himself, which is the true self? So, let's just try running the experiment right now. So, consider the belief he has, the belief that it's not morally wrong to be gay. We want to know, is this really part of his true self, or is this just some other thing within himself? such that, you know, if he could get rid of it, he'd be able to more fully reflect his true self. So many people say, that belief is part of his true self?
2: Is it we can pick one or the other? Or? Which
1: yeah. was which? So the, the belief is either part of his true self or not? How many people say part of his true self?
2: Yeah, and how
1: many people part. say not part of his true self? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Josh, sorry, which was the belief? <laughs> <laughs> disgust versus disgust belief. belief. The, no, the, oh, the disgust versus the, belief. Sorry, yeah. do, should I try it again? Yeah. 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 Okay, there's, a feel, there's an emotion and a belief. The emotion and the belief are in conflict. We're talk, The question is about the belief. Is his reflective belief part of his true self? How many people say yes? And how many people saying no? Should so, we
3: vote if we reject the ontology of the notion of a true self?
1: Well, if no. it's not, if there's no true self, then it cannot be part of the true what, self.
3: What if we think both are part of the true
0: self,
2: yeah.
1: oh, then the answer is yes to both.
2: Yeah. Okay. That's
0: what Should I, I
1: try mean. the vote again? Yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> how many people think it's part of his true self? How many people think not? So, participants answered this question. And then, after answering this question about the true self, they were given a very simple individual difference measure. The individual difference measure is just one item long, and the one item is, would you describe yourself as a liberal or a conservative? So now, we can look at answers to this question among liberals and among conservatives. What we find is this. Among liberals, the overwhelming majority say exactly the same thing that you say. They say, that belief is part of his true self. It's the voice of his true self speaking to him, telling him, don't be prejudiced against gay people. As for conservatives, they say, at the very core of his self, speaking to him, is the, his, this voice of his emotion of disgust telling him, this is morally wrong. But then he just picked up this thing from our present politically correct culture. It's kind of leading him in the wrong direction. If only he could rid himself of that, then his true self would be able to be revealed. But of course, there's also another condition. In other condition, participants get a story about someone who's conflicted, but just in the opposite direction. So, here's the new story. Mark is an evangelical Christian. He travels around the world preaching to people this message, the message that homosexuality is a sin, and he teaches people, coaches them in techniques that they can use to avoid committing that sin, having the self-control not to sleep with other people of the same sex. However, Mark has a problem. His problem is that he himself is gay. So he himself has a desire to sleep with other men, and he openly acknowledges this to people and describes it as part of his own personal struggle. So then participants were asked the exact same question, We have this desire and this belief. Now consider the belief. This is a belief that homosexuality is morally wrong. It's a belief that he should not do the exact thing that he viscerally wants to do. Is that part of his true self? So how many people say yes? And how many people say no? So uh, once again, participants were asked whether they are liberal or conservative, and now we see the whole thing flipping. So in this latter condition, the liberals tend to say, his, his emotion, the seething urges that he has, that is his true self, <laughs> speaking to him, telling him about this other form of life he could have, where he could fall in love, in love with another man and get married. But that's just been papered over by this sort of thing on top of that, just getting in the way, his Christian belief that he should not sleep with other people. By contrast, the conservatives say, at the very core of himself is this belief, this moral belief. In, in this uh, Christian vision that he should not sleep with other men. But unfortunately he's just acquired from other people or from society in some way this desire. If only he could rid himself of that, then he'd be able to more fully reflect the person he really is deep inside, this Christian person. So we seem to be seeing, coming out of these data, this sort of surprising result. It's not that people think on the whole that reason is the true self. It's not that people think on the whole that emotion is the true self. It's that they think that the true self is whichever part of you is morally good. So, when other people are looking at you, they think that certain parts of you are good, certain parts of you are bad. Depending on who you are, it might be that they think your reasoning is good and your emotion is bad, or they might think your emotion is good and your reasoning is bad. Whichever one they think is good, they seem to be seeing that as kind of the (coughs) essence of yourself, and this other thing as something around that, something just covering it over, such that if you could only get rid of that, the person you really are, deep down inside will be revealed. So, in this first study I just mentioned, the actual DV, the question people are asking is directly about the self. But a lot of the recent work on this topic has proceeded in a different way, by looking at these issues more indirectly, by asking people questions that, at least on the surface, are about something else, and then arguing that this question about the true self can actually shed some light on that, can help us understand how people are thinking about these other issues. So we will ask questions about what it means to be truly happy, what it means to be in love, under what conditions someone deserves blame for what they do, and now the thought is that people's judgments about what is the essence of the self can actually explain those kind of que- people's answers to those kinds of questions. So just as one example of this sort of phenomenon, I wanted to mention a study by David Pizarro. So (coughs) Pizarro looked at people's intuitions about agents who act impulsively and do something either morally good or morally bad. So in one condition, participants are told that, imagine a person, for example, who is overcome by this rage, and because of his rage at this person in the car in front of him, he just smashes the person's windows in. Now, in the other condition, participants are told about someone who's overcome by feelings of compassion, And because she's so overcome by this feeling, she ends up helping a homeless man by giving that homeless man her own jacket. And now the question in each case is how to evaluate this person morally. And here you see this striking asymmetry. When people are so overcome by emotion that they do something morally bad, people tend to see that as an excuse. They take away from the blame that you would normally give that person. So the person who smashes someone's windows in because he's enraged is going to be given less blame than someone who smashed that person's windows in after a cool, calm, careful (laughs) reflection. Now by contrast, in the other case, you you don't see that effect at all. In the case where someone's doing something morally good because she's overcome by compassion, she doesn't get any less praise than if she did the morally good thing after a cool, calm, careful reflection. So why is that? What Pizarro and colleagues showed is that that effect is mediated by judgments about the true self. So consider the impulse to do something bad and the impulse to do something good. When you have just a sudden impulse to do something bad, people think that's not your true self your true self is this more reflective part. To the extent that you yield to that temptation, then you're not reflecting the person that you yourself really are deep down inside, and so you're not fully to blame for it. In the condition, by contrast, where you're overcome by compassion and you can't help but do something good, people think that that compassion you feel, that is your true self. And so as a result, what you're doing actually is a reflection of your true self, and you deserve full praise for it. So I think what we see in this study by Pizarro and also in the earlier study by Bartels and colleagues is something that we're finding much more generally in this field of experimental philosophy that experimental philosophy is a movement that was started by people who are really deeply steeped in these kind of philosophical traditions these were people who had spent years and years thinking about aristotle about logic about the problem of free will and they wanted to do some experimental studies that could help them get a deeper insight into those kinds of questions and a priori you could have imagined that what would happen in that case is that As you went deeper and deeper into those questions experimentally, you'd be moving into more and more technical territory that was farther and farther away from anything that non-philosophers could understand. But what has actually happened is exactly the opposite. That as we develop deeper and deeper insights into these philosophical questions, what we're finding is that we're coming closer and closer to just the rest of the sciences of the mind. So that over time, I think what's happening increasingly is that the line between what people are calling philosophy and what people are calling psychology is just increasingly blurred. Thanks. Thank you.
2: Uh, we, we've got to limit the time of questions, so we'll talk quickly.
0: Um, so, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I want to ask about the the deep, true self experiments, and I see two possibilities here. So, one is that what you people judge to be the true self is affected by normative considerations, right? Uh, and the other is that it's the heart of the matter. I mean, you could imagine a place, a store that sells mattresses and they say, well, if you buy a mattress, we'll give 10% of the revenue to charity and mattress sales go up, but you wouldn't conclude that people buy mattresses in order to help the poor or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it could be, obviously there's something closer to the core of the problem than that, but is it the whole story? One way you could get at this, maybe you've already done this is have cases where it's relatively well matched. So you have Josh, the philosopher. Uh, you know who, 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 who and you feel like that's your true calling that's what you've always wanted to do but this life that you live as a dancer it's not you know it's, it's what you did to please your parents or something like that right or you could reverse it where if you have it so that mm-hmm. being a philosopher or being a dancer are sort of a priori rated as about equally mm-hmm. good or equally bad mm-hmm. if you look at things that are neutral is there a tendency to, 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 to think of the sort of the brute desire versus the more reflective, uh, d- desire, one is more of the self than, than, than the other? Does it depend on context? That's what If you've you thought about that or if you already yeah. have the answer.
1: Yeah. So what we see in these data are two separate effects. So one is the effect that I just mentioned, which is just whatever you think is good, you think that's the true self. And the other is sort of the anti aristotle effect. That in a, there, a case in which you have uh, an emotion going against reflection, there's a general tendency to think the emotion is the true self and the reflection is not the true self. So. Now, putting those two effects together, I think we can have a pretty good explanation of why people initially thought that reflection is the true self. The reason is not that people generally, there's something within us having a, the intuition that whatever is the, coming from reflection is the true self. It's just that generally, in cases in which your emotions are and your reflection are pulling in opposite directions, other people are going to think that, you're, that the thing that you choose on reflection is the more morally good thing. So, if we just sampled all cases, in general, there would be a tendency that the thing that people are doing on the basis of reflection is more often going to be seen as their true self than the thing they do on the basis of emotion. But if we can control for morality, then people think system one is the true self. So in the study I just told you about, for example, uh, even though there's an effect of, of political view, there's also just a main effect of of just wanting to say that um, the emotion is the true self and the belief is not. Science is I don't think you should shortchange experimental philosophy by comparing it to neuroeconomics. Because <laughs> in my experience, the experimental philosophers are typically both good at experimental side and philosophy side, and I'm not sure the same can be good both sides of economics. Uh, but the question is, so in the uh, Bartholomew study, you can imagine two reasons you get the effect that you do. One is that, um, when you tell me, oh, my future self is so similar to myself in the future, mm-hmm. it helps me perspective take better on my future self. And I'm oh, like, no. oh, my future self is totally going to want rewards. I'll take their rewards. The other effect is that when you tell me, look, your future self is going to be totally different. They're just similar to any random person. Then that makes me perspective take better on any random person. And therefore, I'm happy to give the money to the charity to the any random person. So do oh. we know which, which is doing the work? Is it, the, is it thinking of your future self as more similar? Or is it thinking of your future self as, as like basically the any man and therefore you give the money to charity? Oh, wait, so the, this is a really interesting hypothesis which I hadn't thought of. So the idea is that to the extent that you think of your future self as dissimilar, it, it's not just that it decreases your interest in your future self. It's actually increasing your interest in other people. So the answer as to whether that second thing is true is not, I don't know. Yeah. But there is evidence that the first thing is true. So if you don't make it a, a, a choice between your um, y- between uh, your future self and other people, but rather between your present self and uh-huh. your future mm-hmm. self, then the more you think that your future self is different, the more you're going to be, in this technical sense, impatient. Yep. You're going to exhibit more temporal discounting. So, but that the fact that that first thing is true doesn't mean that the second mm-hmm. thing is not true. It could be that as you start to think about your future self as being somehow very dissimilar from your present self, you start to feel like a greater communion with other people. You think, other people are more like me. They're people I should really care about in certain ways.
2: And you've seen the mm-hmm. the experiments where people are, ask how much money they will save, and this is affected by, by seeing their face morph into the face of an old man. So people contribute more mm-hmm. when they have seen the morphing and, and they have seen mm-hmm. what they look like mm-hmm. as, as an old person. This this
1: is And and you know, I think one thing that's really striking about this other kind of study that that, uh, both of you are bringing up is there's a tendency when you hear that first result to think uh, to associate this idea of continuity with a certain kind of value judgment. That is to say clearly we think of temporal discounting to the extent that people do it as bad and we think uh, patience is good. So to the extent that people are, are thinking of themselves as continuous, that's more good to the extent that they're seeing themselves as discontinuous, that's bad. But once you think about this choice that you're making, not just between your present self and and your future self, but between your future self and other people, then the idea that there's some specific value judgment associated with this continuity becomes, becomes, just to seem, suspect.
2: It's interesting in your example about durability of the self, that you've chosen sort of a long-range durability, and and the kind of problems that uh, I've often looked at, and I think a lot of people have looked at, it's much less long-range durability than than very short-range durability. Mm. Will
0: I
1: go to the gym tomorrow? Yeah, I'm going to the gym tomorrow morning. (laughs) But tomorrow morning, some other dude's there. Mm. And for whatever reason, that dude's not interested in going to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) And so it, it, it feels like this conflict actually happens at quite high frequencies, and I know people have talked about that. But is that, Simul- simply a special case of the long-range durability that you're talking about? Is that fundamentally different? You see what I'm getting at? Here we mm-hmm. might have called the self-control mm-hmm. but is the problem of yeah. self-control, the problem of <laughs> dual cells, hyperbolic discounting is that merely, is that something very different? Or right, that- that's a really interesting question. So when people think that our conception of the self affects this issue of temporal discounting, how much we care about our future self, the way that they're often thinking about it is this idea that in a year you're going to be really different from the way you are now. You'll really have you really will have deeply different goals. And then you might think, that person isn't really me in some sense. The idea that the next morning you'll already be different from the person that you are now, and that if you start to reflect on that, you could start to feel jealous of your next morning self. Mm -hmm. That's not the first thing you think of, But it would be really interesting to try to extend this kind of pattern of research into judgments of that type. That maybe we're even thinking, I don't know. On Sunday, I'm going to be a little bit different from how I am now. <laughs> Maybe I should, you know, choose something that makes me get the goodies and not the Sunday self that I'm going to go turn into. Go, that's
0: yeah. what I was just going yeah. to yeah. mm-hmm. go back. I mean, I mean, I just recently, for various reasons, have been really angry at my 20-year-old self because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I made all these decisions in my 20s that are still binding me today. Oh, like, oh yeah. was that asshole that did all that <laughs> stuff? You know, <laughs> 30 years yeah. ago, and I, you, I can imagine mm-hmm. a set of experiments where you ask people. Mm-hmm retrospectively, what they think of their 20 or 30 or 40 year old selves, depending on
1: your age. Wait, you know, in a really interesting way, this ties in with the topic that Rob Chrisman was bringing up earlier. So, Rob was talking about this problem in our field, which is that people adopt a certain view and then they sort of stick to that view despite increasing amounts of evidence that that view is false. But maybe now, in light of this, we have a simple manipulation wow. that can make them something <laughs> So, we have to tell people, in some sense, that person five years ago who There's wrote that paper, person. yeah, it was you, but... You shouldn't really feel ashamed of that person's error. (laughs)
2: Uh, I uh, was brought up short a few years ago when I was talking with a philosopher and I mentioned that that I really didn't want to go on living when I became a foolish old dotard and was an embarrassment and all that. (laughs) Time for somebody to push me off a cliff. Uh, And she said, wait a minute, if you had a brother who was embarrassing to you, uh, yeah. would you feel you had the right to push him off the cliff? No. Well, what makes you think you now have the right to make arrangements so that that future self who wants to sit there watching Bugs Bunny? Uh, and I must say that that did give me pause. It's like the Odysseus contract.
3: Right? Yeah, yeah. Josh, so I do want to push this a little bit, not that anything turns on this in terms of the psychological, yeah. the experimental philosophy, but this notion of a true self. I mean, so there are those of us, and I thought that, that Dan Dennett was among these from some passages in some of his earlier work about uh, one of the worst ideas that bedevils psychology about this notion. I mean, so do you, I mean, do you think, for, do, you, do you think there is such a thing as a true self? If you did think that, you know, what would the ontology of that be? Like, what, what, would, what would that be? And if the answer is... So anyway, so let me just end with that. I mean, it, to, to me, if you so as a modular person, right, if you think the mind consists of lots of different bits and pieces, and, then it's just weird to think that you ought to privilege some bit of it over another. And just as an aside, I mentioned that, I don't know if you've seen the, so the people who wrestle with the results of IAT work, where they have this, expli- which is almost exactly the homosexual case that you're talking about, right? So if you look at my reaction times, I don't like black people. If you look at what I say, I say, oh, I love everybody equally, right? And then if you look at the psychologists who wrestle with this, they say explicitly, we're not saying that this implicit guy, that's you, and this explicit guy, that's just the veneer. They're saying they're just two different representations in there, and we don't have any reason to privilege them. So what, what are your ontological commitments, and do those ontological commitments matter for what you're
1: about? Wait, so the question is a really good one. So the first thing to say is, it's an interesting question, given that there's no psycho- good psychological theories that involve an actual true self, why people think that there's a true self. So these kinds of theories that we're developing about human cognition can explain why, in the absence of any evidence for this kind of strange phenomenon, we would believe in one. So what is the thing that's making us believe in it? And right now we're working on this question, we don't know the answer to it, but one thought that we have is that the belief in something like a true self is the application to the self of a more general capacity we have to think of something like essence. So we have the idea of essence, and we can apply our idea of essence to many different things, and then when we apply it to the idea of the self, we get this notion, the notion of the true self. And what we're seeing in the case of judgments With the true self is this kind of weird byproduct of our general way of, of thinking about things as having essences. If we thought about other kind of cases in which we might apply an essence, this notion of essence, we see people applying this notion of essence using similar kinds of techniques, but they wouldn't ever think in these other cases that the essence of something is actually literally like a part of that thing. So suppose you were thinking about a band, like say, the Rolling Stones. Then you might have a certain notion that there's something like the essence of the stones, like what the stones are really about. And then you might have this idea, you know, all the music that they've been doing since like the late 70s is just a betrayal of that <laughs> essence. Right? So, so the, you know, the last 30 years of the stones, that is just a betrayal of this thing, the essence of the stones, like what the stones really mean. That's like what came out in like Exile and Main Street*. But when we think that, we're not thinking that the essence of the stones is something like a certain part of the stones. Right? Say that the stones were in front of us. It's not like we could point to like, a certain part of the band and be like, that is its essence. The essence is this normative notion. It's that if you saw their complete works, you could pick out this thing that's sort of, what makes them of value? Now, with human beings, we also apply this notion of essence. And it seems like the criteria we use to figure out what is your essence are the same criteria we use to figure out what's the essence of the band. We look at all the different things you do, and then we try to think, what is of most value in all of those things that you do? And we think that is your essence. But then... When we try to interpret what it is that we've come up with when we do this, we don't think of it in that way, that we would naturally think of the essence of a band or the essence of the United States or the essence of social psychology. Instead, what we think is that there's actually something in you, like a, the true self module. It's like sending signals to other parts that are being over, overridden. And it's maybe that that gets us into trouble. When we think of this notion of essence as though it was almost something like a psychological theory. Thank you.